The author of Isaiah 40 through 55, we've been calling that person either second Isaiah or the poet, um, trying to differentiate this set of texts from what comes before it. Chapters 1 through 39, in my opinion, and the opinion of a lot of other um, more scholarly folks would say that this is a completely different set of texts that's written a lot later than the, the beginning chapters. Um, this particular author is responding to something that happened that was absolutely devastating, and the author is entrusted with the, text, with the task of affirming, encouraging, and reorienting the exilic community. Um, Remember, early on, even in Genesis, when God calls Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to um, make nations out of you. And there's these promises that Israel has their whole identity um, tied up in. Those promises seemingly were broken when Israel sinned so much so that God uh, sent the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem, to lead them into captivity and put them into um, a totally different setting in life. One that would uh, evoke comments such as this, my way is hidden from the Lord, my God ignores my predicament or my right or my um, situation of, of justice, my mishpat, that's the Hebrew word there. It's as though God has completely abandoned his people, as though he cares no more for what they're doing, and they've ultimately given up. The author of this set of texts is coming back, and as we've, we've reiterated over and over, um, in the beginning of chapter 40, comfort my people, says your God. It's God shows up in the midst of uh, darkness and silence, in the midst of pain and suffering, and says, comfort, I will hold you close to my chest. I will keep you um, and tend you like a shepherd tends his, his flock. One author claims that a prophetic task is to inspire the imagination of the people to see things in a new way or maybe even to see things as they truly are. When we think of prophecy, we usually think of fortune telling. We usually think of um, saying, this is going to happen 50 or 60 or 70 years or even 200 or 300 years from now, uh, but nobody's around to see that come to pass. What this particular prophet is doing and what most of Old Testament uh, prophets were doing was to evoke change to inspire people to see things in a new fresh way. We see those same prophetic voices ringing in our um, society today. You don't have to think too back too far to remember Martin Luther King Jr. and his prophetic speeches that would um, tackle difficult issues of uh, racial reconciliation and, and difficult issues of nonviolence and how to handle um, people in their prejudice. So we see these, these moments of, of speech that are meant to evoke change in the moment now, and second Isaiah is trying to do that, or the prophet is trying to do that, to take this thought, my way is hidden from the Lord, my God ignores my predicament, and saying, that's actually wrong. I want you to reimagine things as they truly are. He's the one who wants to comfort you. He's the one that wants to hold you. He's the one that wants to show up and meet all your needs in this moment. But this is a difficult task, um, and we can probably sympathize with the difficulty of this task because in the midst of Babylonian captivity, there are questions of identity. Remember, everything that Israel is is tied up in the land. It's tied up in the temple. It's tied up in we sacrifice and God likes us, more or less. Um, it's tied up in questions of relationship, of purpose, of worth, of forgiveness. These things were all brought into question. And what we have is Israel in exile outside of the land with no temple, with no sacrifice, with no Torah, sort of, um, trying to figure out who they are. And the poet shows up and says, 
this is who you are. Here is your God. He's going to come to, to meet these needs. Um, these questions, though, are not easily answered. You can tell that some rooms, sometimes, you have a tough crowd, and the things that you know to be true, they don't want to hear it. We've had conversations like that before, probably, with people that are going through difficulties, and we have no idea how to, how to tackle those issues, which leads me to this. In the midst of our captivities, whatever that looks like, I don't think that's a complete misreading of the text. No, we're not in Babylonian captivity, but there are some of us that have gone through Babylonian captivity types of moments in life, whether that's abuse, whether that's brokenness, whether that's just searching for affirmation from a parent, from a loved one, from a spouse, uh, from a sibling, from a friend. They create questions of identity. Usually it's not always this way. Usually it's this way. God, where are you? Do you even care about me? Are you here? Um, what's happening? So we have questions of identity, of relationship, of purpose, of worth, and of forgiveness in our life that have been created by our circumstances with the people that are around us um, that have potentially hurt us terribly. And these questions are not easily answered either, but it's not usually from a lack of trying. Unfortunately, in the Christian community, we have a cliche that will go with any problem that you might be suffering. If someone passes away, we'll sing, I'll fly away and pat you on the back and send you on your way. If a relationship is broken, we'll quote Romans 8.28 at the drop of a hat and say, God works all things for the good of those who love him. If you're graduating high school, we'll give you a card with Jeremiah 29, 11 on it. It says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper. You'll give you a future and a hope. Everything will be fine. You'll get straight A's and you'll get great jobs and you'll have a beautiful home. Go on your way. It's almost like we have these things that we say that maybe we believe until we're the person on the other end of receiving it. So when we're in... Um, Gosh, for, for just a very terrible example, when we're in uh, the funeral line greeting the family, we will say dumb stuff like that. But when we're standing by the casket, we don't want to hear that. You know what I mean? So it's not from a lack of trying that we can't answer these questions, but at times the Christian community has come along and tried to be the poet who can answer all of these issues in a way that uh, will just make people feel all nice and neat and whole and restored. And I just got to be honest with you, I don't think it works that way. If we were to poll the audience here, I'm sure that we could get relatively graphic with the misuse of Scripture, the misuse of these Christian phrases that I believe to be true. Yes, God does have a plan for you, and he wants to prosper you and give you hope in a future. Yes, I believe that God works everything for the good of those who love him. But in the midst of those moments, it sucks. There's nothing good about death. There's nothing good about cancer. There's nothing good about um, injustices that happen to children. There's nothing good about those things. Does God use those things? I hope, I hope so. But in the midst of that, if you think about it for a moment, it's very difficult to wrap your head around why in the world would he want to use something like that? Why in the world would he want somebody to go through that? Why in the world would he let me go through that? And we begin to have these difficulties where we don't want to hear the things that we say to people all the time. So we can understand the difficulties tied up in what the poet is trying to do by saying, I know that you've been removed violently from your land. I know that everything that you've known has been destroyed. I know that you're not where God promised that you would be, but it's okay. 
Can you understand the difficulty of what's, of what's happening in this moment? And to be honest, I've struggled with this set of texts because I can feel your pain. Even though I haven't experienced it, my life has been pretty easy when it comes down to it. I've not had to be the person that stands in the line greeting people as I'm standing next to a family member that's passed away. I've not been the person that's experienced um, divorce. I've not been the person that's experienced a lot of pain as we oftentimes quantify it. But sometimes, even in preparing this message, it just, it just rings so hollow, the things that we say, sometimes the things that we claim to believe. I want to try to fight through that with you today. I want to try to fight through that so that we can present this text and hopefully have it be something that creates an imagination of hope. An imagination of what actually is instead of what we feel and what we experience and what we go through. And that task is, is difficult. Uh, so in Isaiah 40, 12 through 31, the text we looked at last week, the poet asserts the uh, incomparability of God. He is better than the nations. He's better than idols. He's better than rulers. He's better than rival gods. In this context, um, remember Israel outside of the land in Babylon is now being faced with other gods, maybe even better gods, gods that have not hurt them before. Marduk did nothing to Israel, but Yahweh in their eyes might have done something to Israel, even though they claim that they were sinful um, their God has, and maybe in their mind, abandoned them, doesn't care, has left them off to, to try to figure things out. But in this set of texts, he's trying to say that Yahweh is better than all of these things. God is better than the nations, the ones that destroyed you. God is better than idols, the ones that are all around you. God is better than these rival gods in the stars or wherever. God is better than rulers, the ones that are standing over you at that very moment, telling you what you can and can't do. He's creating an imagination that says, the things that you're going through might not be what truly actually is happening. He sums it up like this. Don't you know, haven't you heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This is what we do. We, when things get rough, we go to theology. We go to these theological statements that may or may not have any bearing on life as it is. Don't you know, haven't you heard, that God is, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? One scholar says, does the fact that God rules over the heavens and the earth remove from Israel the oppression of exile and the pains of servitude under the Babylonian empire? What's the answer? No. So here, they're, they're going to theology saying, there's this. God's the creator. He's sovereign. Implicitly, he's got a plan and you're a part of it. But for some people, that's not good enough. So the poet has to keep going, and that's where we're heading today. He says a second argument, same scholar Paul Hansen says, a second argument needed to be added to the first, the argument that God, although exalted above all earthly powers, nevertheless is personally concerned with this specific people in their bondage. It had to be personal. I can stand up here and wax eloquently about the theological... Maybe not so eloquently. I can talk about the theology of God, but if it just stays up here, it means nothing. It has to come down and say, Troy Ray, I care about you because of this. It can't just be this ethereal stuff that's floating around, but oftentimes the Christian faith is up here. It's ethereal. It's not hitting you where you are because you bring all this stuff in with you that says, I've been hurt. I've been discarded. I've been abandoned. And this stuff isn't meaningful to me. 
the poet moves beyond theology to get specific. Um, and the way this, this text breaks down, I really want to just hang out, for the most part, in the second section, but there's three different sections uh, of Isaiah 41, 1 through 20. The first section is a courtroom scene. In the second section, we have salvation oracles where the poet gets very specific with regard to uh, Yahweh's relationship with Israel. And then we go into this moment of reversal and restoration and recognition. And this is actually going to frame the next set of texts as well, where we have a courtroom scene at the end of chapter 41, which launches us into uh, salvation oracles specifically regarding the servant. Hopefully you caught it when Whitney was reading. He refers to Jacob and Israel the offspring of Abraham as servant. That's very theologically loaded language, but especially for that group saying, I know you're out here. I know you're by the rivers of Babylon going through whatever it is that you're going through, but you're my people. It gets personal. And then in the third part, there's a restoration, a reversal of fortunes where in this case, um, we go from dry land to an oasis of sorts. There's a reversal that happens in the very fabric of the cosmos which is neat, you can almost see a bit of God restoring humanity to himself, individuals to each other, and creation to its original design. Sort of. I'm not going to try to force that to fit. Um, but here, the first scene is the courtroom scene. We've read this a bit. Uh, Be quiet before me, coastlands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them approach and speak. Let's draw near for a judgment, for a mishpat, for um, a moment where we can put out everything on the table to see what sticks and what doesn't. This is Yahweh basically calling people to court, saying, you got something to say, here's your chance. In this context, uh, this text here would have been so clearly a courtroom scene. We miss it because we're not part of this uh, establishment. I go home on most days to feed Porter. And when I go home, we leave the TV on because Porter likes to watch the news. He's very educated. He's got a lot of things going on. But I usually will come home and see Judge Joe or Judge Judy or Judge John or Judge George. Those people don't exist, but there was just an alliteration going there, uh, and I wanted, to, I wanted to see it through. But like, in our context, we see those sorts of, of characters um, that imply a courtroom scene, but here in this, in this text, right from the very beginning, it's clear what's happening. There's a setting where court is in session, and it's almost as though Yahweh is wearing the robe saying, let's just go ahead and have a judgment here. He's calling people to task by saying, who has awakened one from the east? This is a really loaded text, um, prophetic text, because here it's talking about Cyrus from Persia who would show up and destroy Babylon. Yahweh's holding court with Babylon and saying, um, hate to break it to you, but there's somebody who's rising up who's going to destroy you. And that's my doing, is what he's saying. So here we have Yahweh that's, again, exerting his power. He's the one that summons these people uh, to, to go about doing his, his bidding. Who has acted and who has done this, calling upon generation after generation since the beginning? I, the Lord, Yahweh, was first and I will be last. Again, he's, he's showing his, 
this might be the bad way of phrasing it, but his, his dominance compared to these other rival gods, they don't have anything that can compare to what's happening here. So in the courtroom scene, we see this idea that the author is simulating a type of legal proceeding that's familiar to his listeners. This is a motif that they're very familiar with, and it's going to strike a chord with them, so much so that it's going to be able to raise from a fresh angle the question of the obstacles standing in the way of Israel's placing soul trust in God, basically by saying the gods that you're around now, the gods that you might be contemplating serving, can't hold a candle to God, so don't waste your time. Once again, the point is the impotence of these other gods, they can't thwart Yahweh's plans. And we see that in verse 2 where he's raising up Cyrus to do whatever it is that he's got planned to do. The nations can't stop it. Israel can't stop it. But we can see that Israel's at the the heart of why God would raise up this, this ruler here. And there's no response from the people in court. I love watching Judge Judy sometimes because she is feisty. And if you cross her, she will let you know. I was home watching Porter the other day, and Judge Judy was on there, and this guy was giving her attitude, and she was like, no, you don't. But She said it a bit more gracefully. But it was like, get out of my court. You shut your mouth. If you could see what her legs were doing, it would be like, kick. Sorry, Doug. Doug yells at me every week. He counts the times I do the leg kick. That was two right there. I apologize, but... I felt it called for it. If you're doing a Judge Judy impersonation, I think the leg kick is... Okay. But from the gods, there's no response, right? There's nothing that they can do other than go back to their wood shops and make an idol and then nail it to the ground so that it stands up and that maybe they can serve that one. In my mind, the courtroom scene, it's great. We kind of lose some of the connection from our context, but this is where it gets good. The poet goes beyond that and says, but you, Israel... My servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham. See what he's doing here. They're outside of the land. They're wondering about identity. And the way that he's referring to them is basically sons, daughters, family. You're not in the land anymore, but you're still my people. When we hear my servant, we think probably not good things. Um, someone who just does work for this domineering, authoritarian figure. I don't think that's the case here. All throughout Scripture, the servant is the one who um, almost works side by side with God to do these great things. Jesus, when he shows up, is referred to in, in this way, as we'll see next week. Here, he's going on to say, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I chose you. I did not reject you. Gosh, for some of us, hearing that from our father, our earthly father, would be worth more than, more than most things. Perhaps hearing that from a spouse or from someone that you're like fighting for their approval would mean so much. Try to put your head in the context of what's happening here. Yahweh is saying, I chose you, I did not reject you, even though you're going through these things. Talks here about this language of servanthood and choosing them, offspring of Abraham, who I love, who I'm I'm committed to, who I will do anything for. We can't wrap our minds around that because we have, on the one hand, 
exile, we have Babylon, we have destruction, we have pain, we have suffering, and then we have the theological witness of love, commitment, comfort. And these two things sometimes stand miles apart. Throughout this text, we also see this, this message of don't fear, don't be afraid. I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. This message is personal. It's one that takes on a different tone than just saying, I've created things. I can do whatever I want. It's getting like right down to their level saying, I'm with you. I will not leave you. I will not abandon you. I will walk through whatever it is that you're walking through in this moment. Don't fear worm of Jacob, people of Israel. Some context uh, translations would say insect of Israel. Here it's almost as though Yahweh is saying how you see yourselves is not how I see you. He's using the language perhaps of, of how they feel about themselves as being the worm or the insects or the people not of worth. And he's saying don't fear worm of Jacob. Almost like tongue-in-cheek. I will help you. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The way that you see yourself is not how I see you. I think if I was being honest, I probably don't see myself the way that God sees me either. It's so easy to, um, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of sin in the midst of letting people down. Uh, this week I've even had a couple conversations with people that I've let down. And then transferring that over into your relationship with God and you try to do so much and you try to work so hard and you try to fix people's problems and you try to do all these things that might merit you some sort of response, some sort of moment where, where God says, I'm with you, I chose you, I didn't reject you. And when you're in that moment, you might see yourself as a worm, as an insect, as something not worth valuing. It's so difficult, though, for us to remove ourselves from that and see us as God sees us. The good news is, uh, and this is sadly a cliche in the church, he doesn't see us through our efforts and through the things that we do and the things that we are actually successful in. He sees us through his Son, when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. And we try and we fight and we, we wrestle so hard with earning things and, and being this type of people. And I think all he wants is just to take us aside and say, I'm with you. It's okay. Relax. I'm with you. Israel in this text is called by name. Israel is affirmed. Israel gets a shout out. I'll be honest. I'm a teacher, as you know, and yesterday was graduation. And at graduation, we have these little bulletins that tell people where the graduates are going to school and what kind of achievements they made and what they did and what they didn't do. The first thing I do is I open those up and see if I got any shout-outs from the students. They basically have this moment to write and thank people, and I'll just scan through it and look just at the bold letters and see if I see any Mr. Jameses in there to see who I've impacted <laughs> as a teacher. Like, we want that affirmation. Yeah, I know that's ridiculous. I'm sorry. I apologize to all the students in the room. But we want that. I'm, I don't, don't want to count. I mean, you know, handful. Let's say a handful. But again, we fight so hard sometimes to get shout-outs from, from the people that, that we teach, and 
Really, we're just dying for a shout out from God. What does that look like? I don't know. Sometimes it looks like, sometimes it looks like getting a shout out from a student that says, you've helped me. And then feeling as though that that's, that's God saying, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and I'm pleased with your efforts. In this text, though, it's so great because they're in, Israel's in the midst of what might be the worst point in, in their Old Testament history. And God is saying, I'm with you. I'm standing beside you. I did not reject you. I have chosen you. I love you. I will be with you. That's a shout out. And it's a powerful one. And hopefully it was one to incite the imagination of the people to see things in a different way. And finally, in this third section, we go into this moment of reversal and restoration and recognition. In Isaiah 34 and 35, we see um, first Isaiah talking in this language of what is going to happen because of Israel's sinfulness. But then in chapter 35, it turns the corner. This is well before anything good happens, but it says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of the Lord. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap up um, like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing with joy. The waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You can see there's a complete and utter reversal from death and sickness and uh, lack of water to Eden-ish sorts of uh, climates, if you will. So with what's happening here, it's this great reversal. Um, Eugene Peterson calls the gospel this great reversal where we, being sinful people, are invited into the kingdom and, and family of God. Because of his care and concern, Yahweh reverses and restores humanity, individuals, and the world. In this moment, in this text, both in Isaiah 34 and 35 and in Isaiah 41, we see gospel we see God taking a broken people, a broken sinful people, and restoring them in ways that they couldn't have imagined. The poor and the needy seek water, and there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will respond to them. I, the God of Israel, will not abandon them. The broken, the shamed, the guilty. I will be with them. I will fight for them. I will restore so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that God did this. At the end of the day, the reason why, uh, the, according to Isaiah, that this text comes in and that God's restoration happens is so that people will understand and consider and see that God still cares, still works, still transforms, still restores. How I want to tie this up, because here in this text, this is for an exilic community very far removed from us 2,600 years ago, more or less. This moment of exile in Israel's history points towards redemption. In Jesus, there is a reversal. In Jesus, there is restoration. In Jesus, there is recognition of God's plan for us. In Jesus, 
You're going to hate this. There's a shout out. In Jesus, there is affirmation. In Jesus, there is salvation. I wish, I wish, I wish, and this is why I get so depressed sometimes when I read these texts, because I move very quickly from hope to almost not hope, because in the midst of this, your marriage might not get better. Your relationships might not be fixed. Your debt might not be paid financially. The difficult things that you have to go through at work or uh, with the people that live on your street might not be reconciled. But there's a hope in the gospel that transcends those things and brings into new levels of meaning and new levels of um, the commitment that we see God bestowing upon us. I hope, and I don't think that I'm doing... a a very good job with this, but I hope that in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through, in the midst of the exiles that we face, we can hear the messages of the Old Testament prophet that says, here is your God. He will hold you close. He will tend you like a flock. The messages of the Old Testament prophet that says, whoever seeks after and follows after the Lord will have their strength renewed. The message of the prophet that says, you are my servant you are my chosen. I have not rejected you. I will not abandon you. Do not fear. As I often conclude, I also hope that in the midst of those moments, we can be the people that stand in the gaps for, for others that are having difficulties in that. I hope that we never become the people that are loaded up with cliches as we go through the funeral procession lines but I hope that we live a life that demonstrates restoration, reconciliation, and ultimately demonstrates the gospel through learning what it looks like to love each other and to love each other well in a way that says, I will not abandon you. I will not reject you. I have chosen you. To see that, to recognize that in our own lives and then to live that out uh, amongst other people. For those of you in the room tonight that are struggling with identity, that are struggling with knowing who you are in Jesus. Hear this. He has chosen you. He will not abandon you. Regardless of what goes on in your life and the things that you see, let the prophets create a new imagination of what truly is. And that is a God that cares about you with everything that he has and that is working things out. Yes, for his purposes and for his good. And in the midst of those moments, I pray for the rest of the community that we will bear those burdens with one another.